0: Dear listener, this is Interfaith Ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, this week we're getting ready to go back to school with Brett Crutch and Zachary Davis, two terrific religion scholars. Who discuss what's going well or not with religious literacy in higher education, and how institutions are creating digital education tools to respond to our current crisis? Have a listen. So we are recording. We're all here. Brett's stuck in the closet.
1: Not a place <laughs> I wanted to go back to. <laughs> oh <No, no>,
0: god. <laughs> the jokes just write themselves. <laughs> So with me today is, is Dr. Brett Crutch, a scholar of religion and LGBTQ history at the Center for Religion and Media at New York University. He's also the editor of the online magazine and podcast The Revealer. And also with us is Zachary Davis, who's president of the audio platform Lyceum and creator of the Ministry of Ideas podcast. Thank you both
1: for joining me. Thank, Thank you. Me.
2: It's a pleasure.
0: So, Zach, you're usually based in the Boston area, but you're, you're escaping Boston's punishing summer sweat out in Utah, right?
2: That's right. Um, I grew up uh, in my early years in the South uh, when my dad was in medical school, but then we moved to St. George, Utah, which is in the southwest corner of mm. um, the American desert. Um, 99% Mormon, uh, 99% <laughs> white, um, and... Um, I was in Utah all the way through undergrad. I went to Brigham Young University um, and graduated in 2009. And um, then I moved to Washington, D.C. I fell in love with a Ukrainian girl. We moved to Kiev so I could learn Russian. Um, And then we moved to Boston in 2012, and we've been there ever since.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you're back home Visiting yes, family. Yes, we um, getting a little bit more space.
2: <laughs> I have three young children, um, and and city life is very hard with three young children in quarantine. <laughs> so we decided right. to flee to the Rockies um, and have some more space, family help, and uh, lots of nature.
0: And how's it going so far? Are they loving it being with the grandparents and everything?
2: They love it. There's pools everywhere. There's cousins. Uh, there's lots and lots of sugar because Mormons don't drink, and they compensate <laughs> by eating too much sugar. <laughs> So I kid you um, not, there are you know there are donut shops and pastry shops and cupcake shops, and the most unique thing about Utah is there are all over drive-through soda stores. <laughs> um, no, there's not. Yeah, it's called there. There's a there's a, a a really intense rivalry between Swig and So Delicious, and you go to and these drive And this is all caffeine-free. Um, sodas. Is well, right? oh no, oh drinks? no. There's there. You know, there's ways <laughs> you get you can get your caffeine legally uh-huh. uh, through Coke products, and so um, yeah, you have all sorts of mix-ins and flavors. And I mean, imagine the most profitable company you can imagine. You know, soda. People are paying for soda. There's, like, no cost. Um, And so there there are these little soda stores all over. It's extremely funny. And the lines are, there's always a line, always.
0: And, Brett, you're over in in New York, which has a a different vibe. (laughs) So how are you holding up?
1: Yeah, it's been, um, you know, I think March and April were um, uh, frightening at times with so many people in the hospital. But now we have a lot of outdoor dining all around us and retail has reopened. So I'm not sure if this is a great thing since other states, their reopenings have led to um, spiraling, um, people mm-hmm. testing positive and whatnot. But uh, yeah, right now we're in our second phase of reopening and and so far so good. So
0: both of you are scholars of religious history, um, but I wanted to start out as we often do on our show by understanding what the role of religion played in, in each of your personal
1: lives. So Brett, can you share about how you grew up and what tradition you were a part of? Sure. So my mom is Jewish, so um, according to Jewish law, I'm automatically Jewish. She grew up in um, a very assimilated uh, German-Jewish family. Um, Their last name was Weiss, and they changed it to white, uh, which for me Mm -hmm. sort of um, actualizes the ways in which... Uh, in America, Eastern European Jews became white gradually, and sort of, sort of like they they literalized that. She didn't have much of a formal Jewish education, but then um, became more interested when I was young, and we were part of a Reform Jewish community um, where um, progress. I would say where progressive political activism was one of the sort of defining features of Jewish identity. Um, Mm. And uh, so, and then now I, um, for me, for much of my adult life, religion, uh, my religious observance is primarily connected to food rather than religious services. (laughs) So, my husband uh, was raised Christian um, and so, we do blended things in our home, but most of what we do, you know, during the pandemic, we've had Shabbat dinner every Friday night and over Mm -hmm. Zoom with other people. And prior to the pandemic, we would host large Passover Seders with lots of people. So, that's really the direction that my sort of personal involvement with my Jewish identity has taken is largely sort of, I think of it as becoming a scholar was sort of shaped in some ways by um, uh, my sense of Jewishness, Um, my sort of progressive, Political involvement and then in terms of like actual ritual observance, it's largely home based and food based
0: and Zachary, aside from mainlining uh, coca-cola products are there are there food traditions in the latter day saint community that you adhered to
2: yeah we so we have a health code called the word of wisdom um, mm-hmm. and it was initially a recommendation um, and then eventually it became codified and enforced as the dividing line between devout Mormons and um, lax or rebellious Mormons. And the Word of Wisdom um, has a number of pieces to it. Most famously, it prohibits hot drinks, so coffee and tea, um, hence the need for caffeine through other ways. Um, And um, it also prohibits alcohol, tobacco, drugs. um, And curiously, it was actually very progressive Um, for its time, about meat, you know, it says, eat meat Mm. very sparingly. Um, Mm -hmm. And what's funny, of course, is that all Mormons, you know, well, the devout ones are extremely strict about no alcohol, no coffee, but, you know, they'll eat meat for every meal, and it's not considered um, against the word of wisdom. So it Mm. kind of shows how, like, (laughs) like, for rules to work, they have to either be, like, black or white. Like if they had said no meat, Mormons would be vegetarian. Um, But by saying Mm. sparingly, you know, well, you know, I didn't have it for breakfast, so I guess I can have it for dinner.
0: That's right. Only two and a half meals a day. (laughs) Um, So what what were the ways in which you connected with the Latter-day Saint tradition in your household growing up?
2: We went to church, you know, every single Sunday of my life. Like never missed a Sunday. Um, hmm. And Mormons really are kind of, like, all in or not. Like, it tends to be, like, you're either really, really active or, like, you know, you're totally lapsed. Um, so church church service is one. Um, the other ways are you have, like, scripture study. So a big emphasis on reading the scriptures. For Mormons, that's the Bible, but it also is three additional works. Um, the Book of Mormon, most most importantly. um The Doctrine and Covenants, which is a lot of Joseph Smith's revelations, and a book of translated text called The Pearl of Great Price. So we would read Mm -hmm. scriptures as a family. Um, I was encouraged to read them individually, myself, um, encouraged to pray. Um, And then there's, you know, lots of rites of passage. So um, you're baptized when you're eight, um, because that's when you're seen as having accountability and kind of enough awareness to make a choice in the matter. Um, at twelve, you receive the priesthood, and you start to have some responsibilities for, you know, overseeing um, and serving the congregation. Um, and then, you know, the biggest rite of passage, um, which divides um, both young people—you know, it turns young people into adults—and it also signals um, your, <laughs> like, your status in the church. Is if you go on a two-year full-time mission. Hmm. Um, and so, did so you, did I you... did I did go mm-hmm. um, and I so you don't get to choose where you go um, you are called by the the leadership of the church um, and of course as you can imagine you know what what has, What is more exciting than being like, you know, sent somewhere anywhere in the world and you don't know where you're going to go? Um, and you can, you know, we would all be scared like we're going to be sent to Oklahoma Panhandle um, while like your friend gets to go to, you know, the Caribbean or something. Um, right, right. So and I got lucky. Um, I, I got to go to Mediterranean Spain. So I was in wow. Granada and Malaga and I spent nine months um, in Gibraltar. So um, wow. I served, yeah, I served a two-year full-time teaching, mission. Teaching uh, the monkeys, right? Teaching the monkeys, altar. trying to try to avoid getting bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so did you did you thrive in that environment growing up, going to church uh, every week? Was that something that you you really took ownership of, even as a young person?
2: I did. I I was very devout. Um, I was really like I wanted to know God. I wanted to feel connected to God. And I naturally was pretty obedient. Um, mm. And um, and I had good parents who, you know, they had the right balance between modeling Christian behavior um, and, like, you know, encouraging without really forcing it. But it was definitely not an option to not be Mormon. Like, it mm-hmm. was never presented to me that, like, you can make your own decision. Like, it was like, this is the truth. We're lucky to have, have it in our lives. And we expect all of our children to carry on this tradition, um, you know, it wouldn't even it wouldn't have been even considered a tradition. It was just we have the truth. We need to live it because we were lucky enough to have it. Um, but mm-hmm. I was a questioner. Um, mm-hmm. I was you know, a smart kid. And pretty early on, there were things that did not make sense. Um, one of the first had to do with questions of um, age of the earth and Um, and evolution. And, you know, technically, the church taught that, you know, God created the earth with an act of will, in kind of a single, you know, moment of creation, and that the the Garden of Eden was literal, Adam and Eve were literal, and that all life came from that, which was basically understood to be, you know, 6,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so when I started talking you know asking my parents about like dinosaur fossils and you know uh, monkey to ape and men looking skeletons, they didn't have great answers and in fact I remember one of the most hilarious theories e- that even as like a 14 15 year old I was like this is bull-, is I was like, well what explains why there are bones that are 80 million years old and and a popular theory that my dad you know repeated to me is like well you know God, may have taken pieces of other planets when he created the earth and it might have had older bones in them, kind of like, you know, mm. this cosmic Plato. And I knew Worth. that that was just weird. I knew that that was kind of wrong. Um, mm. So I, I had some doubts about that, but, you know, I, I had a, a very early moral doubt too about the church. And that was when I was 16, um, I heard about a local kid who had attempted suicide and i you know learned that he had attempted suicide because he was gay and he hated himself for it and he felt completely rejected um, by his family and the community and i remember you know i was told that that being gay was a choice and it was a sin and the fact that somebody would attempt to harm themselves and even kill themselves because they wanted to sin like it made absolutely no sense to me and what made Mm. sense to me is they are not choosing it um and they can't do anything about it and they're being told that it you know that they themselves are sinful so i knew that that was wrong and i quickly you know became um supportive of like changing that. And it, and it led to really intense questions about the truth of the faith that I'd been given.
0: Well, that questioning mindset um, seems to square with with you answering the call to the Ministry of Ideas. So I wanted to ask you to tell us about that project and how you started it over at Harvard.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, it took, it took a number of years, but I eventually came to realize that Mormonism and all religions are historical, and that's actually a huge leap for a devout believer, um, hmm. because you're really taught that they are they are outside of human history, that revelation is precisely the intervening into time and space by the divine, but coming to realize that that everything I was taught, all of my culture, um, and everything I knew came from human choices and human ideas, um, you know, radically shaped how I understood myself and my place in the world. And so what became the most important source of truth to me was history, and specifically the history of ideas, um, because everything we think has a history. And so Ministry of Ideas is an attempt to understand why we believe what we do about Important things in the world, and by understanding where ideas come from, it empowers us to make changes for the better. Mm-hmm.
0: And you've had you're in your second season now of the podcast. The first one uh, started, I think, in 2017,
2: right? Um, and now you're you're at the beginning of of your second season. That's right. So in 2016, um, I had become a pretty avid podcast listener. And I had also gotten to know a lot of professors um, in the Boston area, and I started thinking, man, like I would love to record the the knowledge of these professors and make it available to more people. So um, I approached the Boston Globe and said, hey, what if what if we do a new show? Um, and uh, you know, it's kind of about <laughs> popular philosophy and history. And they were they were interested. So um, I didn't know what I was doing with audio, but I found some collaborators and we mm. we, we we made a first season um, and it was fantastic. So we did um, episodes on on race, on Trump and humor, um, on cannibalism, um, on all sorts of things that, you know, were basically audio essays. Um, mm. And um, I was a student at Harvard Divinity School, and and um, the school was so excited about the way that we were making religion more popularly accessible that they um, decided to sponsor us and bring us on in house. So we're um, you know sponsored and, and supported by Harvard Divinity School. We're now in our third season. We've done you know more than twenty three episodes. Um, and um, it's been an extraordinary thing. And last year, we won an award from the Religion News Association for, um, for Best Student Work.
0: That's great. Brett, turning to you, um, this, this intersection between religion and media is really at the crux of what you're doing at, at NYU.
1: Tell us a little bit about the goals of, of your center and the work that you're doing. Sure, so I'm at the Center for Religion and Media at NYU. It was founded in 2003 as one of Pew Charitable Trust's 10 centers of excellence, so they gave quite a bit of money under the condition that NYU would match that and set up an endowment. So, um, you know, all universities have endowments, but then our center has a separate endowment of its own, um, which has allowed us to do many great things. Um, And uh, and the central project at the center is an online monthly magazine uh, called The Revealer that I'm the editor for. And the idea behind The Revealer is that it covers uh, stories about religion in more depth than you would find elsewhere. So our articles are written by scholars and um, and some by journalists and freelance writers. And so for scholars, it provides an opportunity to share their expertise with the public. And then for journalists and freelancers, it allows them to go deeper than they would often be able to in their regular publications. And so um, mm-hmm. our readers, you know, really do want historical context and nuance. And then March of this year, to complement the online publication, we launched the Revealer podcast and do a monthly episode that um, features one of the writers for The Revealer. Um, and so, we published a new episode yesterday that was on um, Hasidic Jews who lead double lives. It's based on an article that we're running about Hasidic Jews who um, you know, privately no longer believe what their tradition teaches, but who publicly remain committed to Hasidic Judaism. And um, before that, we've looked at things like AIDS in the Catholic Church and yoga and emotional well-being. So um, a range of topics um, that we want to bring sort of you know, the top people in each field and, and let them share their expertise with a broad public audience of people who are interested in how religion influences society.
0: So on that subject, as you're engaging with young people at the university, Are there ways in which you see them creating
1: meaning in religious spaces or even secular spaces like social media? So I would say it may be because of my particular focus in what I teach. You know, I focus on religion and US politics and religion and LGBTQ Mm -hmm. issues. So I tend to attract students who are a bit vocally concerned, I would say, about the influence of religion in American life. And if Mm. anything, what I end up doing more is showing them that religion is not just of the sort of white conservative or white evangelical um, version that often gets more media attention than other forms of religion. So I'm always struck by when students in my classes, you know, read um, uh, King's letter from Birmingham jail, which most of them have read in high school, but had never looked at it through the lens of the ways in which that letter and and much of the Black civil rights movement was uh, framed by religion. You know, was organized in Black churches, and so what I witness and deal with more often is is students who either um, had personal negative experiences with religious education growing up, or they're quite concerned about the role of religion in limiting women's reproductive choices or, you know, limiting um, uh, sort of equality for people who care about queer issues and race issues. And so a lot of what Mm -hmm. I do is both, you know, helping them understand the history of how those things came to be, but also showing that religion in American life is actually much more than that, and that we might possibly be giving um, conservative forms of religion more power um, by the disproportionate focus on those aspects of religion.
0: Hmm. Zachary, since you've been um, also at, uh, at a higher ed institution over at Harvard, how do you perceive the religious literacy of of uh, the folks that you're interacting with? Either, I mean, obviously at Harvard Divinity School, people are there intentionally to, to focus on issues that intersect with religion, but maybe in the in the larger body of students that you're engaged with?
2: Yeah, I think religious literacy is pretty poor among, you know, regular undergrads and the general population. Um, If you're secular, you know, you just don't really have a chance to learn much about religious life and you often, you often get caricatures. Um, Hmm. And, you know, secularism has all sorts of, you know, basically just like, Morality tales about um, evil dogma being overcome by by enlightened reason, and that that story is really powerful. It's very persuasive for a lot of people, and so um, a lot of people feel completely fine saying um, there is absolutely nothing worth knowing about religion. <laughs> it's all just garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that frame is something that I think is you know lamentable. It's one of the motivations of Ministry of Ideas is to have a show that's not explicitly about religion, but brings in religious history and ideas in ways that feel relevant, compelling, and hopefully introduce um, concepts and ideas that, that support people in, in their life and show them that religion is a lot more than just prohibitions. Um, it's traditions of wisdom, art, philosophy, and community that are, are really worth engaging with.
0: And your other endeavor, Lyceum, is helping educational institutions use audio to learn and connect. So are there are there particular projects that, that are exciting to you that have been working well that you see in the space?
2: Yeah. Um, so Lyceum is an educational audio platform and studio. Um, podcasting is an amazing medium um, because it allows you to learn about all sorts of topics and learn them from voices. And voices have the ability to convey all sorts of additional information um, that that text can't, um, such as enthusiasm and uh, emotion and um, and just the sheer pleasure of voice. So, um, many universities and many professors and many amateur, you know, scholars and teachers are using podcasting to try to educate and uplift and inspire Um, and so we're supportive of this you know this giant trend which is kind of return to a more oral or audio um, age Um, Mm -hmm. so a couple projects I can mention Um, so similar to Ministry of Ideas which is popular intellectual history um, I'm hosting a new show called Writ Large which is about the books that have changed the world so it's taking every episode takes one text and talks about in what context it emerged and how it changed people's minds and, and culture. Um, and we're doing a another project, which is teaching the entire Shakespeare canon um, hmm. from the best Shakespeare scholars from, you know, all the best schools and, 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 um, and Shakespeare institutions. So um, what we're really, really excited about is that, like, some of that general humanities literacy that may be falling short in some areas, especially given the cost of of formal education, um, we might be able to help people uh, learn in in this, you know, essentially free medium.
0: And it sounds like that connects a lot with what um, Brett you've been doing with with Revealer as well, providing these as as uh, you know in depth resources, whether the online magazine um, or the podcast. Um, and and I'm curious, you know, given the fact that you're your last semester got uh, truncated, um, or or at least a- adapted very quickly to an online space. Um, Brett, how did you guys navigate that, and and what are your plans for the for the year ahead based on the moment that we're in right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was you know, higher ed was in a state of chaos for much of March, April, and and May, and now fortunately we have months to prepare for the fall, um, and. Uh, I mean, so the work that we do, you know, the Revealer um, as a magazine is, uh, we we have no advertising and there's no paywall for subscription, so everything's free and available. And I, many of our writers are writing so that the articles can be used uh, in the classroom, so that they can complement mm. um, more scholarly texts, that they can you know provide sort of real world examples of of things that students are studying and the podcast uh, aims to do the same and and there are many, just as Zach was saying, you know, there's so many um, podcasts now and YouTube channels that people are creating that it's really sort of um, a gift now that we in this moment of rethinking the classroom and. Um, what our students will have access to is, you know, being able to use these resources now. So, my fall, I was just before we started to sit down and chat, was emailing with a student who will be taking my American Religions class this fall who's in Abu Dhabi, but because I'm offering it online, will now get to um, Zoom in with us every Monday and Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And so, it really, to me, in some ways, is an exciting opportunity that we'll now have, um, you know, a global classroom in a way that we didn't before. And I think I'm excited to see what that will bring to our conversations and the different lens that we can apply to things.
0: So it sounds like, you know, educational institutions are adapting to to meet the needs of, of their students. I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, a range of responses to that and some probably better than others. But I'm also curious how, how the both of you see how religious institutions are in this, in this uncertain moment are either fulfilling or, or falling short to meet people during, during this crisis. Zach, what do you think?
2: Um, I, I do think we've seen some pretty powerful efforts by many religious groups um, to f- reflect on their own histories and, and practices. Um, uh, Of course, I I know most about what my own tradition has done and, you know, Mormonism has a really troubling racist heritage um, where there was theological justifications for excluding black members of the church from full fellowship. Um, And, you know, it wasn't really rescinded until the late 70s under a lot of social pressure. So, there is – there there are challenges with the way that um, religions have engaged with, with pluralism and with um, you know, various members of their own churches. And I, I think that I'm noticing among young, you know, an absolute, absolute intolerance for any kind of exclusion. Um, and mm. I think that those are going to reverberate as these cohorts get older um, and enter leadership positions. So do you, as
0: somebody who takes the view that, that, as you said before, these traditions are historical, um, that is your feeling that even the, the Mormon institution, which is, you know, considered by believers to be divinely guided, divinely ordained, right? Um that it is an evolving institution in terms of its its perspective on these on these t- social topics
2: yeah, it is I mean Mormonism' is funny because it, it, of course we all imagine it and it, it is very very much a conservative institution it's led by you know a huge body of elderly white men um at the same time it's it's theologically it has capacity for Pretty radical progressive change because um, it does not have to adhere to current scripture the way that most Christians or Jews or, or Muslims you know are compelled to. Um, of course there's room for reinterpretation, but Mormons <laughs> can get direct new revelation from God at any point that can mm. invalidate past scripture and so um, that is a very powerful Theological tool, you know, is it used very much, you know, not really for like radical progressive change, but it can happen. And so um, there is a mechanism for evolving, there is a mechanism for reflecting, you know, new information. And I mean, when I when I was a more literal believer, I just remember the mental gymnastics and just the pain of trying to think like, how was God behind you know 100 years of black exclusion how how could that even be possible Mm. with a historical perspective you say oh it's you know it was it was us we we were the ones who had to change we're the The ones the body of the church the body of the church like Mm. members have to change if we want to follow christ's example more closely and so it's empowering um because it shows that you don't have to just abandon a tradition, you can help to shape it and change it for the better.
0: Brent, you mentioned before that you're, the folks that you're interacting with tend to be um, more uh, you know, socially progressive or liberal and, and the students that you're interacting with are, are fairly socially engaged. I'm curious how, how you see this question also of, of um, the role of religious institutions and and the fo- how the folks in your circle um, perceive their influence um, in this moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there, I wish there was more mainstream media attention on the role of um, progressive religious leaders who are marching, you know, who are Um, saying that it is the ethical and moral thing to do at this time, even as they have uh, stopped meeting um, together for services, that now, if you're able to be part of the ongoing demands for racial justice and equality, um, that, you know, for some would use the language that that's the moral thing to do. And there are quite a few... Um, religious leaders and religious communities that are that are doing this and that are using religious language to explain their involvement in peaceful protests during a pandemic, um, mm. and I think that you know it's it's if we emphasize that more, then that can help um, sort of. Uh, tilt the balance of attention and the power that comes with that attention to only focusing on, um, you know, the people who would agree with Jerry Falwell Jr. or Mike Pence. You know, they're just a fraction, and they're a powerful fraction, so I'm not saying to ignore them, but there are many other interesting things happening with religion at this moment that get eclipsed uh, if we only see it through a conservative framework.
0: Well, I'm I'm curious if, uh, given the fact that we are in a, an election year and certainly a fraught one between the pandemic and the uprisings around police brutality and economic issues and everything else, um, we've got <laughs> we've got a, a New York Jew and a and a Utah-based Mormon. That um, I'm curious what what based on what you're seeing. Uh, if you have any predictions about uh, how things are going to end up and the role religion and belief is going to play on, on deciding the outcome in the fall. Zach, do you want to start? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks, as, Brett. As Brett um, formulates his, his Yeah, his I, I, think,
2: um, I think there's some signs that some... <laughs> Christians, evangelicals, and Mormons are turning away from Trump. Um, sadly, I think it has more to do with <laughs> incompetence than the immorality of, of the choices. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure that we can tell a story that um, that these you know, pri- predominantly white Christians have realized um, the sin in supporting such um, a terrible person. Um, but I, as someone from a red state now living in a blue state, um, I constantly try to tell my blue state friends, you you don't really know what it feels like to be completely culturally defeated by secularism um, and to feel humiliated by, you know, the the smart secular people who run circles around them rhetorically, who who rub, you know, Christians' faith in their noses, it it makes you very defensive, it makes you very um, fearful, and it can lead to a terrible choice of supporting, um, you know, Christian nationalist candidates. Um, so it doesn't excuse um, the error, but it it, it is, I, I want to see a country that tries to Understand one another's perspective, and and both sides feel threatened, <laughs> definitely. Mm. And and both sides are threatening. And and I think partly we need to understand that there is no easy harmony. There are like there are just totally incompatible worldviews. Um, but given that, how do we carve out difference? How do we carve out space? How do we carve out safety um, for for everyone? And I th- I think that. We will continue to get um, see the terrible effects of polarization unless we figure out ways of bridging those differences um, and, and building trust.
1: Zach, can I ask a, a follow-up to that? I'm wondering if you have any sense of how Mitt Romney is being received now and his participation in, in protests and some sense that he's not aligned with Trump.
2: Yeah, I mean, would that... All Mormons and all you know, Christians um, or right-leaning Christians would be more like Mitt Romney, um, who, you know, basically was a never-Trumper, um, although, you know, was at one time willing to take a position. Um, Mitt Romney is a kind of god for Mormons. He's just the perfect embodiment of, of, of so many of the culture's values. Um, for good and for ill, actually, but um, for the most part, I think everyone recognizes he's he's a decent man trying to do his duty as a citizen, um, and I do think he, you know, the fact that he was marching with Black Lives Matter, I mean, that's that's a really a, a powerful moment, a powerful image, and I, you know, Utah has been a little bit different than evangelicals in their voting patterns. Um, they're a little more, you know, tolerant and welcoming of of um, immigrants. Um, And a little more suspicious of Trump's excesses, Um, not enough to really, (laughs) to really make a difference. But still, there is a Mormon difference. And I think actually going back to um, the earlier thing, I think it has a lot to do with missions. Um, Mormons are Mm. people who have gone out and spent time and lived with the poor and the marginalized around the world. Nobody listens to Mormon missionaries except the poor and the marginalized. And so we know what it's like to be a stranger in a foreign land. Um, We know that everybody who comes here is coming to our country for understandable reasons, for safety, for prosperity. Um, And we want more people here because we can share the gospel with them. So Mormons are different. Um, and they're just there's less, there's less ethno-nationalism in kind of Mormon tradition um, for whatever reason. Uh, we're constantly reinforced that we're all um, children of God, all of us, every, every skin color, every kind of person, um, and that ideal is pretty powerful.
0: Well, we already jumped into uh, what I was going to tee up for the, for the second half of the show, which is where we turn over the mics to our guests to ask questions of each other. Um, things that they'd like to understand better about each other's traditions or may have misunderstood. Uh, Brett, you already uh, sneaked in a a question there. Uh, So Zachary, do you have any questions for Brett about um, his background or work?
2: Um, Yeah, I'd I'd love to know more about um, how you've navigated a mixed faith relationship um, without diluting the power um, of each one. Um, and and also I'd love to know more about um, what are trends in Judaism? Um, you know how how does how does a devout Jewish person see themselves as the favored of God but still hold universalist beliefs?
1: Sure. Um, let's see. I will I'll answer them in the order in which you you ask them. So the navigating and and inter, uh, faith relationship. So my husband grew up Christian in a, um, a Protestant, conservative Protestant family, and uh, so he. I don't know if he would still identify as Christian, but he certainly that's the tradition that he was raised in, and 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 for many years, that's where I think he felt most comfortable as a queer kid in rural Michigan. You know, like. The pageants and the performances and the choir. It's there's something about the liminal spaces of those um, churches where I think queer kids feel safer there than maybe at their 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 schools. Um, and uh, but then, you know, the process of coming out and that community telling him that that was unacceptable took a toll. So I think he, now, as an adult, I don't want to necessarily put words in his mouth, but my impression is that he feels a bit more comfortable in Jewish spaces and among Jews who um, didn't wrestle with um, acceptance of of gays in quite the same way, or at least it predates our coming out time period. So, um, you know... Um, the more liberal versions of Judaism were ordaining gay and lesbian rabbis in the night in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And, and, and the reform movement was performing, uh, same sex commitment ceremonies, um, by 2000, which was earlier than almost all religious denominations in the United States. Um, so in terms of navigating things, um, there was a time where he occasionally wanted me to join him at a liberal Episcopal church, and I went, but I do think it's it's in some ways easier for, in a Christian-Jewish interfaith relationship, from my perspective, it's easier for a Christian to do Jewish things than the other way around, because... Um, You know, in a Jewish religious service, there will be mention of God and it's the same God, but then in a Christian service, once there's mention of Jesus, then for me anyway, then a wall sort of goes up because now that's not something that I'm all that interested in, um, in terms of my personal anything. And so, we actually, in terms of the balance, we do far more Jewish things than Christian things other than celebrating Christmas in terms of putting up a tree and exchanging gifts. Um, But, you know, one year when Easter overlapped with Passover, we hosted a Passover Seder and then afterwards um, we all decorated Easter eggs. But I have to tell you, the Jews who had never decorated Easter eggs were very unimpressed. After all these years of wondering how exciting that could be, it was sort of a big letdown to everyone at the table that that was all it was. And then you say, I only get a plastic ring in this thing (laughs) when I open it up. Right, right. (laughs) I could have gotten this at the dollar store. Exactly. And the second question so, the second question is interesting in that. Um, I guess it sort of assumes that many Jews in the 21st century think of themselves as chosen and part of a covenant with God, and I think outside of non-Orthodox Jews in America, most Uh, So, the vast majority of American Jews would not use the language that you use. So, um, you know, I had a rabbi that said, to be a good Jew, you need to believe in one God or fewer, meaning that, (laughs) um, you know, (laughs) belief is not central to Jewish identity. And so, according to like the Pew studies, um, at least 40% of American Jews either doubt or deny the existence of God. Um, But that doesn't mean they stop identifying as Jewish because belief isn't central. So, you know, you can think of like Bernie Sanders or someone who he's not relinquished his Jewish identity, but his belief in God certainly is not um, present in the way in which he experiences his Jewishness. And so, I don't think that... Um, a lot of American Jews necessarily turn to um, traditional scripture as a way of guiding their life decisions or political involvement. So for Jews, the like secular religious binary is a false binary because so many Jews identify as secular Jews or as culturally Jewish. And um, there's just so many pathways to... Um, being involved in Jewish communities, so it uh, one may never go to religious services, but they might um, be very involved in progressive politics, or they might be involved in in, in Zionist politics, and and um, or they might be involved, you know, like with me and care about Jewish food or Jewish humor, Jewish literature, etc. So, because there's so many different ways in. Uh, I certainly am not part of conversations that would think of, um, you know, chosenness as a way of then relating to others. In fact, the Reconstructionist movement has removed from all prayers uh, any sense, of any any language of chosenness. The other um, liberal denominations, Reform and Conservative, have not gone that far, but the Reconstructionist movement has explicitly um, excised from the liturgy, any sense that Jews are a chosen people and set apart from the other peoples of the world.
0: I thought Brett was going to say that he wakes up every morning and that's his morning affirmation: "I am
2: chosen." <laughs> 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 well, I mean, I love. I think. I think the tr I think that the teaching, in a way, is beautiful in, in a way that I can imagine it being interpreted, which is you know, not that we're chosen because we're better, we're chosen and we have a responsibility to bless the lives of everyone. And, you know, I've, I've heard the idea that, you know, a core Jewish teaching is to heal the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that phrase actually has come up in my mind a few times in the past few weeks, just because it does feel like our world is broken, um, that there's so many different fissures that need to be <laughs> closed and healed. Um, and that, you know, there's just powerful resources within uh, Jewish scripture and teaching and, and community that can strengthen one's resolve to, to serve others um, that I think, you know, is is, is certainly inspiring as, as an outside observer.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things, I mean, a, a current sort of moment of reckoning right now among progressive Jews is that many see themselves as um, having been fighting for racial equality for many years, but what has certainly been a prominent um, issue on uh, on Jewish Twitter right now is um, many Black Jews saying, like, great that you've marched and given money and done this and that and the other, but we are constantly marginalized in these predominantly white Jewish spaces and people don't believe that we're Jewish. And, um, and so, I think a lot of Jewish institutions right now um, are trying to work at how they have been um, have presented themselves ostensibly as um, good on issues of racial equality, but actually haven't done well by members of the Jewish community who aren't white.
0: Is that conversation happening in the um, LDS spaces that you're a part of, Zachary, as well?
2: It is. I, I, I'd be curious to, to know, you know, how many Black Jews are there and how many Black Mormons are there, and I, I wonder if it's pretty similar um, there's about the same number of of Mormons and Jews Correct. worldwide, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, the dynamics are similar. Um, yeah, I mean, what's what's a little different about Judaism is like it's kind of an ethnicity and right. kind of a religion, whereas Mormonism is definitely just a religion. Um, although there's a certain Northern European ethnicity which dominates for the most part in the U.S., um, but we do have um, we do have a um, black members who are using the, the the energy of this time to try to push for greater visibility and greater changes, and I know that um, Brigham Young University, which is um, the church the church run university and and really has a lot of cultural power for shaping um, the community's understanding of itself. Um, has instituted, you know, a new new task force um, on racism. Has elevated um, black professors into leadership positions. Um, has called for pretty, you know, significant changes. And, and even the rhetoric of it is is all unprecedented. Um, so uh, there are there are similar discourses happening um, among our um, you know black members in the church, and I think everyone feels that this time is different.
0: Brett, do you have any other um, questions for for Zach? I, I
1: do. I, so one final question that I'm interested in is if you have any sense, since you had mentioned, you know, sort of science as one of the the issues that then made you rethink your own um, sense of religion and whatnot. If you have any sense of the current moment and the opposition to science and mask wearing and um, why this is such a debate in the United States, if you think religion is part of an explanation for some Americans' opposition to wearing masks during this pandemic, or uh, if you think we should be looking elsewhere to uh, to explain that?
2: Um, yes, yeah, so I, I had the chance of moving from, you know, Somerville and Cambridge to Utah. Um, in the last month. And so when I arrived in Utah, I mean, nobody was wearing a mask, hardly anybody. Um, and, And I think it has less to do with religion and suspicion of scientific regimes of knowledge and more of an urban and rural divide. So in rural America, there's just so much more space between people they live in these private homes they drive their cars places and they're saying just because new york needs certain kinds of rules doesn't mean saint george utah needs the same rules Mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of like the main i think rebellion is we don't need a single policy for a giant country where the circumstances on the ground are different Mm -hmm. um that said um there is a general protestant and mormon tendency to trust one's own intuition and relationship to God over external authority, whether that's clergy or whether that is, you know, our secular clerisy, which is um, the scientific community. And so there, there definitely is a subtext, which is, you know, experts say that God doesn't exist. So why should I believe experts? Hmm. Because, you know, they, they are getting the most important question of existence wrong. So they might also be wrong about, you know, how important masks are um, or, like, how dangerous this is. You know, maybe it is just harming elderly, you know, elderly people and people with pre-existing conditions. We don't all need to suffer. So there's there's generally, you know, and there's and there's a kind of, like, masculine, patriarchal, like, strength hmm. tradition mm-hmm. that, like, We are not afraid. We walk with our head held high and we're not going to cower before things without, you know, really, really clear evidence that, you know, this is this is a harm to me or my family. Um, So, I mean, I I do think generally my my liberal friends are better rule followers than my conservative friends and family um, uh, in, in certain dimensions. That's helpful. Thank you.
0: Well, gentlemen, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate both of you being able to, to make the time. And, and I think that there's so much more that uh, we could explore. And I hope that uh, the two of you are able to, to keep in touch and to continue to explore these things together. Before we go, can you each share about how listeners can find out more
2: about your projects? Zachary? Sure thing. So um, you can go to any podcast player and you can search for Ministry of Ideas or Writ Large. Those are the two shows that I host. And you can go to the App Store and download Lyceum. And that is a platform and app that has curated all the best educational shows. So it's like a library of smart shows um, like this one that you're listening to.
1: Thanks. Brett, how about for uh, The Revealer? Sure. So you can find The Revealer at therevealer.org, and you can find The Revealer podcast on any podcast um, platform, Apple, Spotify, etc.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, I love the work that both of you are engaged in. Thanks so much for being around today to be able to share some of it with us today. And uh, I hope that uh, both you and your families remain safe and healthy wherever you
1: are. Thank you. Thank you, Jack, and great to meet you, Brett. You too.
0: Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. Thanks again to Brett and Zach for sharing all their insights. Be sure to check out The Revealer, Ministry of Ideas, and Lyceum so you're already the smartest kid in class when school's back in session. As always, I want to give a shout-out to my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovemeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalogue of Interfaith-ish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Follow us on social media at Interfaith-ish. You can see these cool animated illustrations that our friend Tom Cod has been doing for each episode. You can leave us a voicemail on our special listener line at 202-599-2953 or keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.